This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week's guest is Stephen Jones, who is our first return guest, and he's here to give a primer on the mystical traditions. This is the first part of a two-part series, and the second episode will be released later in the month. Expanded show notes will also be posted later this week with links to all the texts we mentioned in the show. Now, I don't want to spend too much time before we get into this interview, but uh, just the standard stuff here. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ExvangelicalPod. And if you have time, please rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps more people find the show and is an immense help to the show in general. We haven't had a review yet this month, so if you have a minute, please take the time to rate us five stars and leave a review. Finally, as you enter the holiday season, please consider supporting the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. The more support we receive, the more content we can provide to you, the listener. Scheduling, editing, research, and interviews all take considerable effort and time, and your support means the world. All right, let's get into it. everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today I have with me my first return guest uh, from episode two. It's Stephen Jones, aka The Skeptical Mystic. Um, and I brought him back to dive into something we sort of touched on, touched on at the end of our discussion in episode two, which was just about the mystical tradition and everything. And Stephen has explored that very very thoroughly and i wanted him to come back and and share that with us so welcome to the show Stephen. hey how's it going it's going great so um we've kind of mapped out a little bit what we want to um what we want to do in this discussion and probably the best place to start is really just trying to give a baseline definition of what we're talking about when we say mysticism i think a lot of people uh are really uncertain with what that what that means um because evangelicalism really tries to present itself as like this solid thing and mysticism in in comparison feels sort of flimsy <laughs> but uh, yeah um but there's far more to it than that so how how can we go about like framing this and discussing what mysticism means yeah um that's a that's a really important discussion because um, not only is there like tremendous variety in the mystical tradition, also um, we approach it from a background, right? <clears throat> so especially for those of us who have, who are coming from um, an evangelical background, you know, like you said, uh, evangelicalism tries to present itself as a unified thing, but there are really two dominant um, attitudes towards spirituality and evangelicalism. And one is, um, one likes to present itself as if it is somewhat mystical, right? Um, it's open to the affective dimensions of religion. It's open to the movement of the spirit, as they say, um, and whatever behaviors accompany that. But then there's also a really strong rationalist, evidentialist strain, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. 
very focused on the mind, resistant to the idea of of mystical encounter and experience. And they'll talk about the spirit, but it's not something they really engage in. And right. so depending on your approach, um, your attitude toward or your uh, your preconceived notions of what mysticism is can be radically different. Yeah, like if you come from a Pentecostal background, you may be very familiar with the sort of spirit moving sort of things but if you have a more presbyterian calvinist sort of strain um then it just like you said it's going to be much more uh trying to present itself intellectually um yeah and, and i don't know that either of them are in a position to approach mysticism well um because they both think they have it figured out obviously but encountering the mystical tradition on its own terms um is difficult because for most of us, it's recovering a lost world Mm -hmm. because Um, it goes back. I mean, to the foundation of the faith in a lot of ways, correct? Yeah. Mysticism is, is as old as religion. Um, and even though we often think of mysticism as one dimension and maybe an optional dimension of religion, the mystics have always seen themselves as the pure representation of whatever tradition they're they're expressing Hmm. right they see themselves as as the true heart of religion so yeah it's i mean if you think about it religion in some ways has its origin in mystical experience otherwise how would we develop these other expressions Hmm. yeah (laughs) it's kind of like um when you put it that way it's almost like we put the cart before the horse with all these intellectual um arguments for religion (laughs) yeah and and you know i mean i have a background in philosophy and i don't want to um just deny that the intellectual tradition has value um of course it has value but the arguments for the existence of god aren't particularly convincing are they um but experience can be Mm -hmm. because experience has a different kind of authority than reason does right yeah, going back to uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral of the four things that inform our worldview, experience, tradition, scripture, and uh, what's the fourth one? Shit. What is the fourth one? Experience, tradition, reason. And scripture. Yeah, scripture. There, there we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, scripture's the one that we <laughs> neglected. Whoops. Are oh, we goodness. revealing a bit about ourselves there? <laughs> um. Yeah, but of the four, reason is the one that gets minimized. Mm-hmm. I mean, not reason. Uh, experience is the one that gets minimized. Right. Um, because experience is so personal and individual and subjective, and it might have authority for you, but it can't have authority for anyone else, yada, yada, yada. Um, but all of these other things have their root in experience. Right. Everyone, I mean, even people that, that uh, in that vein, the thing that... Um, you know, for someone that wrote things like like mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he has a he has an experience like on a motorcycle that he's on the motorcycle. He's not a believer. He gets off and he is like, yeah. And he describes that, and it was the experience that convinced him, not necessarily just the rational mind. Um, and which I think is that's really one of the reasons. Yeah, I mean, it, it is non-rational in a way. We say not below reason but above reason right Mm -hmm. it's um reason can approach it but reason can't express it or encapsulate it right um 
And I think that's one of the reasons why experience gets dismissed, because we're a very reason-focused tradition in the West. We like reason. I mean, we're heirs of the Enlightenment, right? So um, we like evidence. We like reason. We like things to be thought through and orderly and logical. And not everything is. In fact, the most important things about life are not. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, just the, the impulses that drive us in motion. And, and there's a, definitely like the, the whole study of irrationality, even from an economic perspective, is, is blossoming because of that. And because the motivators are not rational. Yeah, I mean, we're not, we're not thinking beings who can feel. We're feeling beings who can think. And that's, that's a significant distinction. Yeah, well, so let's, um, let's also uh, try to frame this historically, too, uh, because um, what, what, we're, what, uh, what you've prepared in very, very well just in, in our prior discussions is really a, like, kind of like a historical survey of the mystical tradition just to be a primer for anyone that that wants to investigate this whole history of thought um and like you mentioned this sort of um expression of christianity in particular because that's what we're going to primarily focus on and mysticism mysticism does have an interfaith interfaith uh, aspect as well but it has mysticism in general in the west has been sidelined in preference of these more intellectual traditions, but it feels like it that wasn't necessarily the case prior to the Reformation. So, can we give a just a quick primer on basically how we got to this point in 2016, where the the emotion, the personal experience, and all of that was downplayed? in favor of intellectualism. Um, but now people in this sort of more postmodern perspective are beginning to re-engage with these traditions that actually do legitimize personal experience and a more experiential uh, aspect of their faith and understanding of the world even. Yeah, um, you're right. The Reformation and the Enlightenment... Um, are the two biggest movements that change the way we think in the West. It helps to, it helps to start with a, a, like a working definition of religious experience or mysticism um, because it, it can be such a loose thing. Um, as a starting point, um, I like to, to start with the definition that um, Joachim Bach established. He's, a, he's an anthropologist of religion. He says, um, religious experience is the response of the whole person to the perceived ultimate, um, whether that's God or your higher self or the universe or whatever, um, characterized by a peculiar intensity and results in appropriate action. There are a lot of elements to that, um, but that's because we need to hem this in on all sides, um, this thing that we're calling religious experience or mysticism. So... Um, Firstly, that it's a response to something outside of ourselves. It's not self-generated. It's not something that we're creating out of our own experience. Um, it's not self-motivated. Um, and it is the whole person. It's not merely about um, reason 
or ideas. It's not merely about the heart or feelings. It's not merely about the will, but it's inclusive of the whole self, including the body. In fact, religious experience um, demands the whole person. And that's one of the reasons why religious, religious experience is so powerfully restorative and healing, because it demands integration of the parts of ourselves that we've neglected or suppressed. And so it's, it's a journey of self-discovery as much as it is an encounter with the other, because the other demands all of you. Um, and to the perceived ultimate, the transcendent, um, it's something that goes beyond that which is beautiful and useful. Um, so it's, it's not about pragmatic benefit, right? Um, right. It's, some, it's something other than that. And it's not merely ecstatic. It's not, it's not just an experience that we enjoy. First of all, it's not always necessarily pleasurable. And it's not something we uh, experience and then walk away from unchanged. It's something that reorganizes a person's life around it and results in appropriate action. Because um, legitimate spirituality doesn't remove a person from the world, but it makes them present to the world more fully. It demands action from us. Hmm. So that's yeah. That's a that's a useful way to just fence in the very loose topic of mysticism. Um, helpful before we uh, before we even get to the Re the Reformation. Um, until the Reformation, um, practices like this were really the privilege of, of a few. Um, beginning with um, individual monks or, or nuns, um, people practicing monasticism in very uh, secluded ways, eventually forming communities and traditions. And so the culture of the West was really preserved and founded in monasticism in a way. Um, and uh, so, yeah, especially through the way they transcribed so many different texts, not just religious texts, but the actual act, act of being a scribe um, preserved multiple multiple um, classics and epics, including things like Beowulf and, and other things. That, that was the work of monks, um, because literacy was not common at the time. Yeah, the, the monastic life um, until the modern era was was as much a privilege as a responsibility um, because you were able to be educated in a way that no one else could afford. Um, and so you have people who can engage spirituality in a vocational way um, where this is the primary calling of their life to engage the divine most people could do that. They're spending the majority of their lives making sure that they and their families and their communities can survive. So up until the Reformation, mysticism was um, a privilege. Um, and it centered in monastic communities. Now, what happens with Luther? Luther is actually influenced by um, 
certain pietistic strains of mysticism. Um, so he's not anti-mystic exactly, but he he is um, anti-monasticism. He actively shuts down the various monastic centers, has the the religious people reintegrate into society. It really hamstrings um, the mystical tradition in that area of the world. But he also tries to democratize a lot of these mystical practices. He says everyone can engage scripture more or less as literacy, you know, grew as, um, as printing grew as, as, um, the ability to engage scripture grew. Um, the idea that everyone can participate in it, um, was one of his hallmarks, the priesthood of all believers. Everyone can pray. Everyone can intercede on their own behalf. Everyone can seek encounter with the divine. And there's a sense in which that might be true, but you're also handing a whole set of practices to people whose lives are mostly already consumed by responsibility. Mm. And so their engagement in these practices is not in any way the same thing as what you had happening in monasteries. One, so, could, pro- one could probably, you know, compare that to what people call busyness now. You know, they just try to shoehorn it in. And that's to be expected, right? I mean, people have responsibilities, just like you said. Yeah, um, not everyone has the has the privilege of making this the, the cornerstone of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's helpful for us um, when, especially coming out of uh, an evangelical background, where devotions are considered um, holy ground, you know? that everyone prays and reads the Bible daily, you know, you set aside quiet time or whatever you want to call it. And maybe that's successful and maybe it's not, but you're, it's expected of you. And so when a certain amount of spirituality is supposed to be part of your ordinary uh, religious practice, um, how does that stand in distinction with what we're calling mysticism? Well, what we're talking about is something vocational. Um, we're talking about a life that's been organized around this um, rather than a set of practices you're adding into your life alongside other practices. Um, and the other thing that happened in the Reformation is uh, Calvin, who did so many good things and so many bad things. Um, he, I mean, he was, he was a bookish kind of guy, and he basically um, just jettisoned uh, mystical practice entirely and said we should only approach God through doctrine so he effectively neuters spiritual practice and you know that's one of the strains that Protestantism is, is heir to um, the, the rational approach yeah and that's still still very present within American evangelicalism in particular um, you have people that are descendants and very faithful to Calvin both doctrinally and as well as um, from a from a pragmatic or practical way um, the one that jumps right to mind is John Piper um, who calls yeah. who goes so far as to call things like Arminianism heresy uh, and, and that's how um, clear he likes to be on doctrine in particular um, yeah he's a he's a real a stick well, in the mud 
a well-meaning and unfortunate man. Um, he's he's more loyal to Calvin than Calvin was, you know. Um, that's that's probably not true, but it's a it's a way of saying he's he's hyper Calvinist, you know. Mm. Um, no one was this extreme before, but he he finds it necessary anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, are there any other sorts of frameworks or? Um, terms that we should really try to define as we um, walk through some of the primary figures of early mysticism. Let me see. Let me see. Um, it's probably helpful to um, address very briefly um, uh, in the Enlightenment because we're, we're heirs to oh, the okay. Enlightenment. Yeah, sure. So the Enlightenment was um, uh, this obsession with epistemology that's the the philosophy of knowledge uh what is knowledge how do we gain knowledge how can we trust it how do we communicate it um they they wanted an unquestionable foundation for knowledge which turns out to be a really terrible idea but they wanted something secure they wanted a way to um be strictly rational in their approach to to knowledge which had some profound effects on the West. We began to dis divide up the sciences. Theology and philosophy have to be separate things. Mysticism and theology, separate things. Um, and all three of those things are separate from the sciences. And such distinctions were never taken so seriously before. So when we're engaging the mystical tradition, it's profoundly philosophical and experiential and theological, um, and it engages the sciences. So, and when we're, when we're seeking out a rational, objective foundation for all knowledge, what that does is relativizes personal experience. It minimizes its authority. So that's, again, one of the reasons why uh, mysticism gets sidelined the way it does, because mysticism is a vocational spirituality that takes experience seriously. And it runs counter to... Um, the way Protestantism compromised with and reacted against uh, the Enlightenment. So that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. Especially, and just in, the, in light of being on essentially on the other side of the Enlightenment, it helps kind of speak to the current predicament <laughs> um, when even even the most empirical sorts of explanations for things feel uh, unsatisfactory to many people. Um, and why these traditions feel relevant to, to many, many people again today. Yeah, we can't pretend the Enlightenment didn't happen. You know, we're its children. But um, if we want to figure out how to move on, we need to figure out what life was like before it also. Um, so recovering these traditions helps us be alive. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about mysticism, um, again, I've sort of presented it as if it's a monolithic thing, but it's, there's tremendous variety. So there are, there are as many different kinds of mysticism as there are personalities. Um, you've got speculative, um, mystics like Meister Eckert. You know, um, he's a real head trip to read because he's very rational. Um, you've got affective mystics like Julian of Norwich. Now, 
she she's a theologian through and through, but she's a theologian of the heart. Um, there are passive and interior mystics. There are some that are more active and exterior. Two of my favorite modern theologians are Dorothy Day and Daniel Berrigan, people who often aren't even seen as mystics. They're seen as social activists, but their social activism is born out of their, their mystical convictions. There are ecstatic mystics. These are the ones who often get our attention, like Francis of Assisi with his, his wild experiences and um, uh, manifestations in his body of his experiences or Hildegard of Bingen, uh, one of my favorites who for her entire life had visions, um, these very profound, disturbing visions sometimes. Um, but then there are, are mundane mystics like brother Lawrence, um, who has this simple idea of practicing the presence of God, washing dishes in the kitchen. He thought he would be able to live his life solely in prayer, but he found God in doing ordinary things or Therese of Lisieux, who finds her peace not in being a great soul, but in being a little flower. Um, she calls her way the little way, being little with God. And there's something profound in that. And for some people, that's the way to engage God. That's, that's what they need. Because the point is, there's tremendous variety in legitimate mystical practice. God gives to each person according to what they need, right? Mm -hmm. So... It's important that we don't give in to the idea that there's a right way to do this. You do what works for you, not what doesn't. Right. I, I think that's a very important distinction, too. I mean, you, it's not that there is a single prescription that um, that is right for everyone. I think that's the sort of thing that, um, especially if you are moving away from evangelicalism, which really does try to do that in a lot of ways, depending on where you come from within the wide evangelical culture. But I mean, single, singular sorts of prescriptions for problems or for understanding or, or experience is a, a commonality. Um, and I think that's a great distinction to make. It's not, um, not that there, that this is necessarily, necessarily a prescription for, um, for anything or, or for something that, that doesn't feel right. It's more about, um, finding a way that feels accepting and, and correct for the way that you want to be and to couch it in in a religious term and how you might want to be in relation with God, um, so to speak. So I think that that's a very good point. Yeah, mysticism says the answer is not in having simple doctrine or in having a simple set of practices or a simple way of seeing the world. Mysticism has its answer in being a simple person in you finding simplicity that that can mean a lot of different things in the presence of God. So mysticism begins with noticing what you're drawn to, what piques your curiosity, what your heart resonates with. 
and you follow that. Trust your desire. See where it takes you. Uh, Benedict said, God makes you desire. God is what you desire. If you, if you honestly follow the desires of your heart, it leads you to God. Because we're made for this. This isn't something strange or esoteric. We're just taking seriously the idea that God made us for love, for communion. So yeah, our, our deepest desires are clouded and complicated in a thousand different ways. But if we can be still enough to recognize what we really desire, then trusting that desire and following it will lead us to God. And yeah, that's very powerful. So, um, for people that are really looking into this and curious about what the hell people mean when they say, you know, they they read mystical writings or however, um, however you want to phrase it, I am very noncommittal when it comes to how people like to describe things. Um, but where do you where do you recommend people start to explore? mysticism that that haven't done so yet well there are there are five authors who are easy to recommend as um beginning fodder for people who are are brand new to this way of being um one is richard Rohr. he he gets you know he's um he gets a lot of attention right now um he's sort of the new uh, the new voice box for Franciscan spirituality. Um, he's basically a child of St. Francis um, with the, the, the idea of alternative orthodoxy, that we needn't necessarily summarize our faith and bottom line it um, in the way that fundamentalism would like us to do. Um, rather, we can explore an orthodoxy that's based on a certain kind of practice um, of of trying to look like Jesus and allowing our theology to grow from there. Um, so it's really just shifting the emphasis back toward practice rather than belief. Um, but there's a lot that goes into that. So if you wanted to start with Richard Rohr, um, I, I would suggest uh, two books. One is Everything Belongs. It's a great primer on the heart of mysticism. Um, and eager to love. Eager to love is another um, excellent beginning text. For those who are ready for something a little more substantial, um, I'd recommend R Richard Foster. Well, substantial, maybe another word for that is practical. Because Foster is the practical mystic. Um, if you pick up Celebration of Discipline, it's, it's an exploration of 12 disciplines as something good for you, not something you have to do, right? Um, here are ways that we have found very effective to engage God. And here's how you practice those. Um, the practical questions of something like fasting, like what's the last meal you should eat before beginning a fast? How should you begin eating after a fast? All of those old bits of wisdom that we don't really have access to anymore. He explores that stuff. And the other text is uh, Streams of Living Water. That's where Foster explores um, different threads of spirituality and Christianity, um, different ways that, that 
our religion has manifested itself. Um, so he's a, he's a good way to explore the variety. Oh, that's great. I haven't heard of that one. So no, it's great. Yeah, he's good. Um, if you're, if you're less about the head and more about the heart, but you still want something substantial, um, I always recommend Henry Nowen. Nowen is um, a, a very friendly place for evangelicals to start, but he will guide you deeper into the mystical tradition. Um, he's a profound man who had to learn to speak very, very simply. And if you learn his story, it, it makes sense. Um, he's a profound person. But I would begin with um, a little text called With Open Hands. Mm-hmm. It's it's the it's the simplest of texts, but it um, is a practical guide to the attitude of prayer. What is it we're doing when we pray? And beyond that, um, Life of the Beloved. In Life of the Beloved, he explores what it means to believe in a God who is the lover, and how how our religious experience is about allowing ourselves to be loved, because we're we're refusing that in a variety of ways and suffering because of it. Right. So it's, it's very affirmative and encouraging. Yeah. He was, he was very prolific. I've, I've, I've read or heard of many of his books, but he's gotten, he's, he's, he published so many during his life that (laughs) it's, um, it's hard to know necessarily where to begin. Um, so, uh, with open hands, it's centers around prayer. I think you said, correct. Um, so yes, it it was definitely um for someone i i read that one a, a few years ago and it was definitely really powerful and prayer in particular is something that i've even as even as an evangelical i struggled with it and um still kind of do to this day both in its practice as well as its kind of intent and what its its goal uh so to speak um yeah. but that that book was uh was great and i i need i think now given our current climate and everything i feel like i need to return to it (laughs) um because for such a simple book that's that's now gift is is he communicates powerful things with such simplicity Mm -hmm. when i struggle with prayer now i i regularly find it's because i've slipped back into my old evangelical ways of thinking about prayer Mm -hmm. and sort um, of cause and effect sort of Yes, yes, no, maybe, sort of. You know, telling God what God God already knows kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, But with open hands is one of those things that can always bring me back. Yeah, I I gave mine to uh, my copy, which was a small little mass paperback copy, to um, actually an old pastor of mine. I never got it back. (laughs) 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 But anyways... (laughs) Um, but yeah, now and um, uh, what little I've read yeah. has been extremely impactful. Um, and he did have a very, very strong sense of of the love of God and what how that should transform us if we allow it. Yeah, yeah. Um, another person who would recommend not. Not for immediate beginners necessarily, but um, Lewis Savory. When you start getting into um, wh- what's the belief structure in mystical practice, um, how are we seeing the world, um, and the 
And when you want to get serious about spiritual practices, Savory is a good place to go because he, well, in one text, um, the divine milieu explained, um, this is him presenting the, the theology of uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin in a way that's accessible to people. Um, we might get into that a little bit later, um, but it's a way to think about the universe. Um, foundational metaphysical truths, what is going on in the world about creation and existence and all of this stuff from a mystical perspective. And he, he was a scientist who took evolution seriously and, uh, and says evolution and the love of God are the same thing, yada, yada, yada. It's beautiful, but he's difficult to read. Start with savory. <laughs> savory presents him in a way that's accessible. And in a similar vein, Ignatius of Loyola, who we'll probably talk about shortly, um, he set out very practical rules and a list of exercises for spirituality. But again, hard for modern readers to approach. Savory, in his book, The New Spiritual Exercises, presents Ignatius in a more positive and modern uh, way, right? So he is much more approachable, and you get the benefit of Ignatius without you know, pulling teeth to read, right? <laughs> so, new spiritual exercises, handy book. Um, and here's one out of left field. Um, here's a recommendation that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily give right off the bat. Um, a book called Markings, which is the personal journal of Dog Hammarskjöld, um, the second uh, secretary general of the UN. So a very important person in the last century, someone who was very engaged in the political realm um, on a global level, but who did so from a place of deep personal mystical practice. And his journal reveals that. And so especially if you're a person who's actively engaged in the world, busy, and yet still is drawn to the mystical practice and doesn't know how to approach that, his journal is a great way to start. Hmm. That's a it's a very interesting recommendation. Oh, yeah. And um, I'll be putting all of these recommendations in the show notes, too. So people will be able to to find links to them and, and explore them on their own as well. So those are all great recommendations. And um, I think pe- people will have a very good grounding of, of where to start looking at, at uh, mysticism in general. So you did um you did mention Ignatius of Loyola there for a minute and um uh I th- I think let's kind of let's start there uh in looking at some historical figures uh, if you don't mind. Um yeah. The one thing that I remember really from a church history survey course I took at school in college was mainly just that Ignatius of Loyola was known for his uh, additional vow to the to directly to the pope um and that sort of thing but um his overall um any the the remainder of his <laughs> uh, of his legacy was not addressed really <laughs> um probably because it was a survey course at a protestant school <laughs> but yeah um yeah. but i mean i'm sure the jesuit tradition and it them having very strong uh very strong academic traditions probably speaks to 
the rest of his legacy as well. But uh, and I actually live in a neighborhood that has Loyola University <laughs> here in Chicago. Um, so anyways, uh, let's, let's dig into, um, what he, what he added to the mystical tradition. Yeah. Ignatius is a a monumental figure in Western spirituality and we miss out on it quite a bit. Um, he's one, he's the origin point of one of the main strains of spirituality in Catholicism. You've got Franciscan spirituality, you've got your Thomistic, you know, sort of neo-scholastic um, practice, which is the more dominant one. And then you've got the Jesuit tradition. Um, and that finds its origin in uh, this in pretty incredible figure. He did make this extra vow to the Pope. He has a strange um, and spectacular life story, which is interesting to read. Um, he's, he's, pre- a, he's a pretty inspiring person, especially when you get to his experience at the River Cardinaire. Um, he has this transformative realization that God is in all things and all things are in God. Um, and his entire life is different from that point on. Um, and we find that that particular experience, that river card and air kind of experience to be uh, ubiquitous uh, amongst mystics. So one of the important questions with, with Ignatius is what do we mean by spirit? What is the spiritual world when we're talking about um, spiritual discernment? What are we engaging? And one of his important insights is that this is the spiritual world. Our existence now, what we see around us, this world, this life is already a spiritual life. We're engaged in something real already, and we don't necessarily recognize it. So how do we learn to be sensitive and aware of what's going on with us spiritually so that we can play an active role in our spiritual lives rather than being passive victims of it? That's what he calls discernment. So he'll talk about the discernment of spirits. And um, in his own writing, he'll use the language of angels and demons and et cetera, right? But um, what he's talking about is not necessarily some other spiritual realm. He's talking about um, the experiences that pass through us that we don't necessarily have control over. So it's being aware of something that we, we may be passive to. In a yeah, sense. we're passive to in some ways, but we can, we can be responsible to it. Mm, okay. So, so he develops this series of, of practices, which he calls the, um, the, the rules for discernment. Um, discernment of spirits. Um, so there are like these 14 rules, which are really important in their whole set of um, exercises in his, in his text, the spiritual exercises. But what he, what he's trying to do, he's creating a month long spiritual journey for someone to really begin their spiritual lives. And it's a, it's a process of discerning um, how am I invited to participate in what God is doing? Call it a vocation if you want uh, a calling, but the point is to discern the leading of the spirit in your life and to be confident in that awareness and to respond accordingly. So his text is a great place to go to find 
different kinds of spiritual practices, different forms of meditation, um, different ways of engaging scriptural text, different ways of praying, all with the goal of being attentive to spiritual reality. Um, how to be present to God, present to yourself, present to the world, and how to listen. That sounds like exceedingly contemporary. <laughs> yeah. And its relevance, and just almost in the way the the language you use to describe it is, I mean, it just echoes with the current themes of mindfulness and vocation and finding the sort of life you want and even a 30-day aspect. That sounds like something you could buy in a seminar. <laughs> Absolutely. But, and to this day, if you find an Ignatian, an Ignatian retreat center, you can still do the full 30 day retreat or oftentimes they will repackage something in like a one or two week retreat hmm, um, wow. for people who can't do the 30 days, but it's still a contemporary practice because it is so relevant. Um, his, his, his 14 rules are, are transformative. So he begins by helping you discern the difference between spiritual consolation, spiritual desolation, and what makes those spiritual and not just circumstantial, right? How can I tell when spiritually I'm in a place where I'm moving toward faith, hope, and love, or I'm being discouraged away from it? How, how can I be sensitive to those dynamics within myself? And once I can distinguish them, when I'm in spiritual consolation, how do I respond? How do I make the most of that? If I'm in spiritual desolation, how do I gird myself? You know, how do I prepare myself? Um, how do I respond responsibly to this negative experience? And whether I'm in consolation or desolation, I'm not going to be there forever. How do I prepare for the next thing? So it's eminently practical. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, that is day-to-day, -day, <laughs> you know, feet-on-the-ground sort of spirituality yeah. right there. <laughs> you know, it's it's so relevant and contemporary. Um, one of the big theories of change that's come out of the last century is the theory U. Um, it was big in uh, some academic circles for a while. The whole point is... Um, in making decisions, if you make a decision quickly, you're making a decision based off of all of your accumulated programming, which is a poor way to make a decision. However, if you pause and descend into yourself, if you go deep into the situation and into yourself, you can find a place where you exist independently of your accumulated programming. And as you begin to rise back up through the, like, through the depth of your being, you can rise up to a place where you can engage the situation independent of your past programming, and you can make conscious decisions for change, and you make wiser decisions that way. And that's, a, that's an entirely non-spiritual, uh, modern theory of change, but it's describing exactly the process that Ignatius laid out centuries ago. Wow. Yeah. I think just, just in, just in that, um, recounting of, of Loyola's, uh, Loyola's work and Loyola's, uh, insight. I mean, it, 
it validates it validates the need to go back and look at yeah look at the work that was done um and i had a professor that in college that his favorite era was the middle ages um and he would always call it the either the medieval period or the middle ages because he really did not like the idea of them being called the dark ages <laughs> um yeah and actually i mean this this speaks to to this validates that and us being you know clever 21st century people um maybe we're not as clever as we thought (laughs) (laughs) or they were they were just as clever back then and uh yeah (laughs) well it reminds me of of something that one of our mutual friends likes to say um old ideas need new voices Mm -hmm. yeah you know the the arrogance of thinking that we're coming up with new ideas, <laughs> you know, that, that level of conceit um, is unbecoming, but we still do need to rehash the old ideas. They, we need to express them anew. They need new packages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always the heart of Ignatian spirituality. This, this idea of being imminently present to yourself and to God and to the world. And that's all the same thing. And like listening in that moment, um, I always think of this, this, this quote by DeWitt Jones. He's a, he's a, an important photographer. Um, um, when he's talking about how do you, how do you take good pictures? Like the excellent pictures, not the same things that everyone takes. How do you catch the magic in a photograph? He says, look at the ordinary, see the extraordinary fall in love with the moment, encounter the fire of God. Hmm. And it's, I mean, that's the spirituality of photography, right? But that's, that's how to be present in the moment. That's how to be present to God and present in this world and present to yourself all at the same time. Yeah. It spiritualizes the mundane, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's a recurring theme in the mystics. Mysticism gets this reputation for being esoteric, for being other, but no, it's, it's imminently about this world and this life. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's something that, that a lot of people really, frankly need, (laughs) um, when we become accustomed to, to so much is to basically revitalize the mundane aspects of our life. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that's true about all legitimate spiritual practices, they all involve some measure of uh, understimulation. And why? Because the truth or the assumption is that there is something true in our depths there is something true about being present in the moment, present to the world, present to ourselves, that that's the place where we encounter the deepest meaning that we're seeking after. But there's something in us that um, fears that because when you encounter the other that gives meaning, um, it's also an experience of not being in control. It's an experience of um, being outside your own limited understanding. And there are a whole host of reasons why we find that terrifying. 
Um, and oftentimes that terror is exposed, ex expressed in moral terms, that I'm encountering the holy, but I recognize how unholy I am. Um, so that's a terrifying experience. We, we envision God as angry in that moment where we don't want to be in the presence of God, when we don't want to be in touch with that truth. Right. Um, we have trouble being alone. We have trouble being still. We have trouble being bored. We have trouble with silence. And precisely for all those reasons, the spiritual practices make you face those things head on. Be bored. Do nothing. Be alone. And when you're there intentionally, you find that your fears are ungrounded, that there's something else that's true entirely, and the, mundane, the mundanity of your life does have significance and meaning again. Right, yeah. But it's through understimulation. And we do the opposite. We, we cloud our, our, our minds. Right. Well, another tradition that really kind of goes into those, those things you just mentioned about con confronting, <clears throat> sorry, about confronting the, the mundane and through, through solitude and through stillness is the Desert Fathers who established what is known as the threefold path. Um, should we go ahead and sort of explore that and, and what we can learn from them as well? Yeah, yeah. The Desert Fathers have a peculiar, peculiar and austere beauty about them. And, and there's an austerity there. Um, desert is a good image for this variety of spirituality. Because at first glance, it seems dry and hot and barren. And there's no life there. Um, but anyone who's been in a desert long enough knows that that's not true. The life is hidden. The life is spectacular when you discover it, right? And so in the, the, the Desert Fathers, that era, that version of spirituality begins when suddenly Christians aren't being persecuted any, anymore. And a lot of people feel like, well, now it's too easy to be a Christian. Nobody is doing the real serious stuff anymore. So we have to make it artificially difficult on ourselves. And that seems kind of um, broken in some ways. Uh, and, and in some ways it was. And, and in other ways, they were discovering something, um, something deeper than ordinary spirituality where when you don't just give in to your every desire, you discover a self that rises above desires. You, you discover a more pure version of yourself. So the austerity of the desert provides a place where um, you can silence a lot of your interior noise and grow still enough that you can be practiced and adept at listening to God. So they find that this practice follows predictable patterns with people, that it's very difficult at first and pays off tremendously eventually. So mm -hmm. they call this, they eventually call this the threefold path, but it's, um, it's, it's almost like stages, right? Stages of, of spirituality where you begin in this place of purgation where um, 
it's it's terrible because when you're first alone and still and quiet then suddenly you're filled with interior noise you want to go back to all that other stuff and it's a painful experience it's it's boring um it's tragic um all of your desires that are used to being satisfied as soon as they show up they throw a fit man and your interior noise is is painful and so that purgative um that purgative stage is so intense that uh, a lot of people just give up right like they they don't push through that but what they say on the on the other side of purgation is illumination where you eventually begin to see through all of that to a greater truth on the other side. You find the thing you're truly hungry, hungry for when you deny yourself all of the little hungers that are distractions, right? That's the idea. So that's the second phase. And illumination eventually brings you to um, the unitive uh, stage, right? Where you experience some kind of unity with God. And that can be expressed a lot of different ways. Maybe that means um, an intense experience of God's presence, an, an intimacy with God. Some people express it as a dissolution of the self into God. You know, like that's that's said a lot of different ways. Um, but still, the idea of unity captures that. That there's an experience that I and God are not entirely other, even if we are other. Mm-hmm. And that threefold path becomes the dominant mode of spirituality for the West. Um, we don't always recognize it, but take, for instance, um, Dante's Divine Comedy. It's often read as, I mean, obviously it's poetic, but it's often read as some kind of literal exposition on hell and purgatory and heaven. But no, it's, it's an exposition of spiritual pilgrimage, where the person begins in hell and has to go through this purgative experience before illumination and finally unity with God. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The significant insight for Dante is what's the difference between hell and purgatory. They're the same experience. They're the same torment, but in purgatory you're moving and in hell you're stuck. Right. That's Dante's like primary insight. Um, yeah, this this gets developed in the West in in these ladders of ascent. A lot of people use the name ladders. Some people use the the term stages, but this becomes um, a pretty common theme. Um, those who are adept with spirituality and and are helping others in their spiritual journeys notice patterns in the way we progress toward God, and so. Um, these show up in a lot of different ways. And some people do like seven stages and some are 13 and there's one that has 30 and yada, yada, yada. But most people develop a pattern of three or four stages. So this pattern of purgative, illuminative, illuminative, unitive, even shows up in, in say Kierkegaard, for example, in stages along life's way. He says there are three stages of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. There's the aesthetic, where you're you're 
you're in bondage to the obvious, basically. And then there's the religious stage where you reject the obvious for that which is beyond because you realize that there is an other um, which has more meaning and significance. And then he says you move beyond that religious stage to the ethical where you re-engage the obvious because you recognize the intimate relationship between the other and the obvious. That the other is in the obvious and the obvious is in the other, right? Wow, yeah. So yeah, um, the three-stage approach is is very common. Sometimes people will do like a four-stage approach, like Bernard of Clairvaux. He says you begin in a place uh, best described as love of self for self's sake. And that's pretty relatable. He says then you move to love of God for self's sake. And then there's the big shift, which is love of God for God's sake. And finally, and this is often what throws people at first, the final stage is love of self for God's sake. And that signals that pattern that I keep mentioning, that legitimate spirituality in its maturity always brings you back to the world. You have to engage yourself. You have to engage the world because this is the world that God loves, the world that God created. And so encounter with God can't possibly lead you away from the world. It leads you to engage the world in a better way. Yeah. And again, to bring that to um, a very specific and sort of modern analogy, um, especially in relation to the idea of purgation and wanting to make some, wanting to find a way to be comfortable with stillness. That is not something that comes naturally to so many of us now, especially when, uh, not to necessarily demonize technology, but to maybe demonize the way I and I personally use it as well as many people as a way to distract oneself from, well, oneself. Um, I mean, it's so easy to log on to Twitter or log on to Netflix or whatever and just engage with something somewhat mindlessly in order to avoid the discomfort of the things that may be occupying your more subconscious mind. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, I don't consider myself a master by any means, but I've been doing this a while. And that doesn't get any easier. The demons don't go away. You can kind of rise above them, you know, but they don't go away. I just don't know what to do with myself. I don't know what to do with myself. I just don't know what to do with myself I don't know what to do with myself Moving 
I mean, I use demons me- metaphorically, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm not a big mythology guy. I don't, I don't need necessarily to believe in Satan and demons and angels and all that stuff in a literal way, but the language of demons is pretty useful in the spiritual life. Um, what else do you call the things that get under your skin without your permission? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, uh, is in, in light of that, in light of it, not necessarily being um, any easier, even with practice, um, or those things not being put to rest forever. Um, is there an element of this sort of practice that becomes cyclical or, or, you know, one may go walk through this path several times just over, over the course of someone's, someone's life, um, or even over the course of like a week or, or anything, you know, um, more practically, how would how would you describe this? How this framework has worked for you, and it, I mean, you can depersonalize it too. <laughs> like, maybe not yeah. necessarily for you, but like, just to, as an example, um, how might it be be used in 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 a contemporary life? Um, I I I don't know. I, this is part of the evangelical strain coming out in me. Like, find that practicality, and this yeah. Is, <laughs> Well, well, that's the thing. Uh, I mean, mysticism has to be in some way practical or otherwise why bother, right? right. <laughs> I mean, spiritual encounter has to matter for ordinary, ordinary lives. Um, so yeah, these stages are helpful in like an abstract way. And I'm a guy who can just look at the abstract and process it and embrace it. And it's wonderful. But yeah, applying it is touchy. One thing I would say is they're helpful because they signal that you shouldn't expect to reach the heights easily or soon. That there's, there's an element of pilgrimage in the mystical life, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you can't get to point D without passing through points A, B, and C. Now there is a point where that starts to break down because just because for the just because I've managed to come to this place where, say, for instance, I don't think I'm there yet, but let's say I, I love God for for God's sake. Um, the first time I reach that that place where I've experienced that for the first time, I might hold on to it for a few minutes and then it's gone, and I'm back for love of God for self's sake, and I might flutter back and forth between those for a long time. In fact what most of these people say is there's sort of a punctuated equilibrium in a way where you actually spend more time in transition. It's sort of an inverse punctuated equilibrium, I guess you spend more time in transition between these things than you do locked into an actual stage. Right? So at any one point, these don't necessarily describe anyone. Um, and so, if I'm particularly 
in a bad place one day, I might be experiencing more love of self for self's sake. Um, but I would say through practice and time by God's grace, you know, we have the ability to spend more and more of our time at higher and higher states of being, whether we do that all the time or not. And so there is a lot of bouncing around, but there's also a sense of progress. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Like one day, eventually it might not be so hard for me to stay in those higher places more often. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great way to, great way to say it. Um, I mean, I, I also like abstract ideas. Um, though I, I also get discouraged, can, um, get discouraged easily too, you know? So, um, when, when it comes to being, I don't know, I, I guess like, not necessarily the reason why I wanted you to sort of explore that a little bit is just because like um if this is new new to someone I I didn't necessarily want them to feel a sort of discouragement if it's not this like it's not necessarily a linear linear progression um it might be yeah. it may have more of a um it may have more of a just a sort of like a natural growth sort of thing not necessarily uh, like you're leveling up like in a video game it's more yeah it's more like you're and and like bulking up in the gym or something like that to use to use a couple of metaphors but rather that you know seasonally these things might change just like something more like a tree than than a video game or a, a a gym bro you know yeah you know, metaphors from nature are pretty helpful in the spiritual life. Um, yeah. That'll come back around later in our conversation, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, one of the things that's often hard for those of us who are coming from Protestantism, um, but especially from evangelicalism, is uh, applying the Protestant work ethic to our spiritual lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and moralizing the spiritual life, right? So, um, the spiritual, like spiritual growth, you know, like at climbing the ladder of ascent, spiritual maturity, whatever we want to call this thing, isn't something you can do. Right. It's, it's, it's what happens to you and it has to happen naturally and organically. It is like, it is like caring for a garden. It is like a plant growing. You can't make it happen, but there are practices you can do to make conditions favorable for your growth. Right. So you have, you can choose to participate and cooperate and allow it to happen in you, or you can resist it, but it's a natural thing that goes back to, this is what we were created for. Right. It's a, it's a very human thing. And so part of the difficulty is to let go of control of it, to let go of a sense of responsibility for it. And, to drop the moralizing because if we trust that God is the one who grows us, if we trust that, that spiritual growth comes from God, that it's a gift of sorts, that it happens to us, then wherever you are now is where you're supposed to be. 
and we can we can we can quabble uh, squabble we can squabble <laughs> about that in a lot of different ways but the but ultimately it comes down to do you trust god enough to trust where you are at and to not condemn yourself or condemn anyone else for where they're at because these stages aren't necessarily morally better than any other because you can't choose to be there. You can't make it happen on your own. Right. I think that's, I mean, that's, uh, an incredible insight because I think, um, especially, especially the part where you, you talk about both moralizing it. Um, I think that's a significant struggle. And for a lot of people that uh, were brought up within evangelicalism, um, just because I don't know, it's imbued through a lot of the overall culture. Um, everything is made into a moral issue and also the Protestant work ethic part, um, you know, part of what is sort of presented in the evangelical culture as, um, um, signifiers of spiritual maturity is when you get like a spiritual promotion of some sort, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you like, you're made a deacon or you are on the worship team or you're made an elder or whatever it might be. Um, when really that is those demarcations don't reflect anything about your internal life. It reflects how successful you are at climbing the social ladder of a local church. And I'm not sure whether it signifies it. I'm sure it is, can be, can correlate to an internal life. Um, but that's a bit of cynicism shining through right there. Um, (laughs) and not, not a tiny bit, but, uh, um, ideally, ideally that would be the case that it correlates and sometimes it does, but whether it correlates or not, we're going to say it correlates because that validates our, our power structures. Right. But yeah. you, yeah, and what you, um, what you said about it being, you know, you can't necessarily control where you are. Um, that is really also another thing within the sort of evangelical mindset. Um, and even if you are no longer identify as evangelical, this is part of your initial. This can be part of your sort of initial framework for understanding yourself. is is very much about control. We see that manifest within the way evangelicals can vote um, about their idea about their ideas, whether they're Calvinist or Arminian, about personal salvation, um, about feeling control, um, and then that does bleed into the sort of um, the sort of way that we can moralize and and think and be self-critical about ourselves um, and thinking we're not where we should be. Um, where I, I think one of the main things that really um, calls out to me personally about mysticism um, and all the different facets of it is that it is very much about being honest with um, with God, just not trying to prescribe to a certain way, but really honestly wrestling with God, being being aware of where you are, um, and your relationship to this immovable mover and this, this other, um, and doesn't necessarily have to have that moral component. Um, and 
I think that's really, it can be very hard to overcome, but once it, once you sort of allow yourself to, to have the freedom to feel that way, it's just, uh, it's liberating. And I, I can't think of a better word than that. You know, in, uh, in preparation for us talking, I flipped back through one of my mo- more recent journals. Um, I'm not good. I'm not good with journaling. Um, but precisely for that reason, when I do it, it can be um, kind of powerful. Um, and I, I came across this moment when I wrote down, um, holy crap, God doesn't reject me. I reject me. Wow. And and the emotion of that moment flooded me. I had forgotten about it. But yeah, the realization that I was I was projecting all of my own garbage onto God. That, like my own trauma had formed my model of who God is. And so being confronted with other models of God, um especially the ones I was experiencing, right? Like you experience God kind of through models sometimes. That's hard to explain. But, um, you know, I always, I always ask people, who, who has God been to you lately? Because you're never getting all of God at once, right? <laughs> um, right, yeah. So, so yeah, that, the realization that, um, that much of our theological dance is about projection, onto God and that God is as Jesus says God is the one who makes rain fall on the just and the unjust alike you know God is the one who welcomes both of his sons home and celebrates them one of them squandered one stayed home and bitter and is bitter but he celebrates them both anyway because God isn't petty the way we are petty and um the 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 moralizing approach is more about our own garbage than it is about who God really is. And I think the word you used is spot on. It's vulnerability because one of my favorite working definitions of fundamentalism is it's it's theology without the ability or willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah. And and mature spirituality leads a person to a place of vulnerability. Theologically vulnerable, you know, I may or may not be right about these things because God is bigger than my ideas and my language. Um my way of seeing you and your spirituality may or may not be accurate. So I'm taking a hands-off approach with with my own spiritual life because I don't pretend to be a master of it or understand. And so I'm certainly taking a hands-off approach when I'm working with you in your spiritual life. You know, vulnerability is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. Yeah. And the lack of it is a hallmark of those who abuse religion for um, the worship of other things, like power or money or success or prestige. And that's not what we were created for. Like yeah, yeah. At the beginning, and and that's that's what moralizing is. Moralizing is a is a tool of invulnerability. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. I I mean, 
<laughs> to be honest, Dad, um, this is actually going to be a multi-part series, and I really feel like this is a great place to sort of um, to stop this part of our conversation so that we can come back in part two and start to work through some other um, some of the other major thinkers within the Christian mystic tradition um, or traditions. That's more more accurate. Um, but yeah, uh, just being vulnerable, being, um, being honest with God, with where you are in relation to God and relation to yourself and everything. Um, it's a real through line through a lot of the things we've talked about, both, um, with Loyola and the threefold path and also the other insights that these other, um, recommendations we have for novices really, really, um, really have is that, God well, is God is bigger than you than you think, and um, mm-hmm. also that he could um, God can handle your honesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what God refuses to to handle is our lack of honesty, right? Like right. God, God wants intimacy, and intimacy is messy. Intimacy is wrestling. Yeah, you know the yeah. whole his the whole history of the spiritual journey in the Bible is about um, what what God wants of people who seek God. And it's all about it's all about wrestling and questioning. It's never about having the answers. And these I mean these are the things that your guests have been saying since you started the podcast, right? Um, like these themes are running through the mystics we're talking about, but it's running through all of your conversations. That's one of the reasons why I think, and it seems like to some degree you're wondering if it's true yourself, that uh, like mysticism is more relevant now than ever. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an escape from the culture wars <laughs> that are like revitalized once again in such a you know powerful way over the last couple of years, and even this just, just 2016. Um, and... It's just, it's a, it's a way to step out of that, engage something both deep and historical. Um, and one of my major critiques of evangelicalism is that it tries to present itself as historical, but is in many ways sort of ahistorical and, and is a sort of lives in its self-contained, um, spheres, and doesn't necessarily want to engage with the overall history of Christianity because it's a lot more messy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and subversive. Yeah, and subversive, <laughs> absolutely. And subversion <laughs> is not something that evangelicalism desires at all. Um, no. it, wants, it wants homogeneity, and it wants control. <laughs> it, it um, sees itself as an agent of social order. Right. And And the God of the Bible and the God of Christianity, the God of Jesus is always about challenging the current status quo. Right. And and so you have within these mystical traditions this historical aspect d- removed from that and um ultimately like you said it will lead you back to the world and it will lead you back to a way to both exist in and affect the world. Um and with a better informed sense of self um because all of it requires such a such a level of introspection that um 
it's <laughs> you have to pass through it basically. Um, yeah. you have to pass through it. So, um, I really, I'm really thankful that, that you were able to share so much of your knowledge in this episode and we're going to come back, um, next week and discuss this even more. But in the meantime, where can people find your work online? Um, maybe the best place to find me is, um, well, two ways that they can find me. Um, one is I've started a, a YouTube channel where right now I'm doing very awkward things to try to figure <laughs> out, you know, what I'm doing. But um, uh, the the web addresses for YouTube channels are not nearly as simple as they used to be. So the easiest way to find me would be to just search for Mister Skeptical Mystic. Um, putting quotes around that may help you find me. Um, but if you find a picture of my ugly mug pop up as the channel image, that's me. Um, I guess you won't know if it's me or not, but if there's an ugly mug with skeptical mystic, bias, that's <laughs> me. um, and the other way, um, this may be a little easier is facebook.com slash the skeptical mystic. Uh, no punctuation or spaces or anything there. Awesome. Um, that gets you to my public Facebook page and you can find other things from there. Awesome. Thank you, Stephen, um, for coming back and talking. And I, um, it's going to be awesome to talk a bit more and share this with, with everyone because I think it's uh, it's so relevant and so insightful. So thank you. Thank you again. Absolutely. It's an honor and a privilege. I look forward to talking with you some more. Great. Thanks. <laughs>